Good morning, everyone. Privilege to greet most of you. Couldn't catch up with some of you, but uh, the morning's not over. We've been in a series called Get Over It. We began with endless excusing and then chronic complaining. Joel uh, delivered last week uh, forever fearing, and today we want to talk about constant comparing. Some things that we really need to get over so we can get on with what God's called us to. At our home, we're really into good TV. And uh, we can't think of anything better than the Andy Griffith show. Have most of you know, teens, have you ever heard of that before? (laughs) Recognize that theme song? Well, we like the black and white versions best. Like, I think that season's one through five. I think after that, Barney leaves and Andy gets mean and, and nasty, complaining. So we don't watch those. But there was a color incident or two in the last couple of seasons that got my attention. And it was about Goober Pyle. Goober worked at Wally's filling station for 11 and a half years. Wally was going to sell it without telling Goober. He finally got the funds and Andy and Emmett co-signed so he could get a loan to buy it. And then he was overwhelmed with being the executive because he's focusing on all these things instead of just saying, Goober, be the who that you, that you are. Be that warm and friendly person. Well, in a later episode, uh, Andy told Goober that they were going to go to Raleigh for an auto show. And Goober said in his shy way, can I go along? Can I go along? And Andy said, of course you can. So they went to Raleigh and decided to stay in a hotel. And while there, Goober said, I've got an old friend here, friend, that I went to auto tech school with here in Raleigh. And then we worked together for a while. And then we went our separate ways. And I want to reach out to him. So this guy was kind of a braggart and kind of full of himself. So sure enough, on the phone, Goober called him, and he was just talking about all the position, how he'd climbed the ladder, and he was this, and he was that, and he was a high roller. And so Goober thought he needed to press him, too. So he said, he, he owned, he said, I think one station that pumped 80 gallons a week. He got, yeah, I've got a whole string of service stations up and down the eastern seaboard. And they were just one up in each other, one up in each other. So they actually went to the car show and met, and then Goober took them out to the, one of the best restaurants in Raleigh. He couldn't afford it, but he, he, he had to show him that he, had, he was a person of means. And he had schooled Andy and Aunt B before to make sure that they supported his story, that he had a string of gas stations, but he didn't tell Opie. And, of course, in the meal, Opie goes, I didn't know you had a string. I thought you just had one station that pumped under 80 gallons a week. And the guy just began to humiliate I mean, because he, he was, I forget his title, but he just, he just unloaded on Goober. I mean, Goober hit the skids. I mean, he went into depression. He couldn't look at anybody the rest of the trip. trip. So they were headed home in Aunt B's old convertible, Andy driving. They pull in a filling station on their way out of town. And Andy goes, I think I'm going to go in. I, I want a pop, a bottle of pop. He always said that. Anybody else want a bottle of pop? Nobody wanted one. Goober is back there pouting in the back seat. So Andy goes in, gets a bottle of pop, glass, pops the cork, looks in the bays where they're working on cars, and spots Goober's friend, who was supposed to be this high and mighty executive, and he was covered with grease and grime and coveralls, and he was under a car on a lift. He was a auto tech. And wasn't anything. So Andy thought he'd be good. He so went out, called Goober in, and said, look at in there. And Goober's face just showed surprise and shock when he saw that, that his friend wasn't what he said he was. But then Andy goes, come on, Goober, let's go in. I, I want you to just say hi to this guy. You know, like, <laughs> everything would be in the high. But Goober said, no, Andy, 
I've seen enough. I don't want to go in because I don't want to humiliate him and embarrass him. And then Andy complimented Goober on, Goober, that's who you are. Be that in the place God put you. So I want to talk about comparing because it's so, it's so deadly and dangerous. I mean, you think about it. We all have to deal with it. I don't care if it's possessions. I mean, car, houses, lands, whatever, income, appearance, the way we look, we don't look too much of this, too much of that, our performance in our role, in our job, as a spouse, whatever it may be. But, but maybe more so than anything in life circumstances, you know, and, and I hear things like this or attitudes. I pick up attitudes like this. Um, well, sure, if your life was my life, well, I'd be good too. Come on. Why can't I get a break? All this stuff happens to me, to us. It's just not fair. Oh, those were curse words when I grew up. Anybody with me on that? I mean, you didn't go around saying it wasn't fair. And I go, I'll show you what fair is. I think that was a response that I heard. Comparing, and I could go on and on. Um, life isn't fair. I'm not so sure Jesus was fair. He didn't do the same thing to everybody. He kind of lived with that do for one that we've talked about, where he was. But I want to say this boldly. I don't care who does it, who it's a part of their life, whether or not, but God hates comparing that's because he loves comparers. That's why he ha hates comparing. Do you understand? Because he knows how negative it is. So I was thinking, we think about comparing and all that, being peer pressure in high school, every youth pastor, peer pressure, peer pressure, but that doesn't end when you get out of middle school or high school for sure. It follows you like a shadow into your adulthood. And I want to tell you, the Lord is not pleased with constant comparing because it's harmful and destructive to your spiritual health. This is a practical series. And I want to tell you three things that we need to get over in regards to comparing. And then I want to talk about a couple of things that, that will help us do that. You know, not just going, I'm going to get over it, but here's how. First of all, I would say that comp comparing kills contentment. How many of you know there's a lack of contentment in our world now? Just a little more. If I, if, uh, yeah, no, not now. Commit, contentment's elusive. It's just around the next quarter. No, it's not, because it's not a destination. It's in you. It's in you. Comparing yourself with others over time will deliver a damaging blow to your Contentment and peace levels, they won't even show on the dipstick of your life. Only in contentment can significance be found. My dad used to say this word, killjoy. Don't be a killjoy. I want to tell you, comparison is a killjoy, a joy killer, a joy stealer, if you will. Not only for you, but for everybody around you, for everybody around you. 2 Corinthians kind of addresses it. You could read the scriptures around it, but in 10, 12, it says, don't worry, we wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. Oh, that's so true. And then it goes on to say, how ignorant, don't do it. There's nothing good about it. Success in your life has nothing to do with, with feeling inferior or superior to others. That's not it. You were never created to be someone else other than who you are. Some of us need to get that. God created you on purpose, with purpose, and it has everything to do with being who God created you to be and called you to be. That's how we do the living, transformed piece of our mission. 
It's not in the past, it's in the present. I'm living transformed. I would say it this way, that comparing ourselves to others is kind of like a mirage in the distance. When we get close, it's not really there, it just disappears and seems to move further away. A mirage is never the real thing. It may be a form of hallucinating, never real. But I know this, if you play the comparison game, you will never find contentment, never, never, never. But mirages are fake airbrush features, not reality, and I don't care what form it's in. Comparing never honors the God who made you. And that's what I want you to see in all these things we've talked about. It really goes back to, it, to, it, to an issue with God Almighty, not somebody else, but God. You're not enough, you, you, didn't do, you made a mistake with me, I'm an oops, or whatever it may be. No, don't play the comparison game. And could I just put a little ditty here and step on some toes? By the way, you don't have a perfect life. No one does, so quit acting like you do. Please stop posting and projecting that you do have a perfect life. And everybody said, uh-huh. Get over it. Let's get over the comparing because it'll never lead us to the path of contentment. The second thing is comparing creates pride. If you pull up scriptures and look for the word pride or prideful, you will see it time and time again, like this one in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before what? Destruction, that's a pretty heavy word. And a haughty spirit before the fall. When I think of a haughty spirit, I think of my neighborhood, Mrs. Searfoss. Those of you who've been here for a long time, you know that she existed in many, many ages past. I don't think she has any relatives that tune in or watch online, as far as I know. We're talking the 50s and the early 60s. And, uh, but I remember her. She, she, was a, she was a really grumpy neighbor and was very frightening to us and very mean. Uh, but we still treated her with kindness because that's what our parents made us do. But I, I remember she, she had a carriage about herself. I mean, she was tall and she had a good posture and she would be out there on her porch, and I mean, she would have her nose in the air and literally just look down her nose at us kids, like, who are you little people? Do you even exist? Do you even matter? I mean, with a haughty spirit and eyes. Oh, that didn't make me feel good as a little kid, I can tell you that. It kept me off balance, and I didn't want to like her or anything, but my parents would make us take her cherry pies and things like that fresh out of the oven. What are my parents mean to us kids? Oh, we had it tough, I'm telling you. That's what it reminds me of when I think of that haughty spirit. But the Bible teaches that pride is never good. And when you get your arrogant nose in the air, it's hard to navigate the reality in front of you. That's a good line that I wrote. I want to read it again. It's hard to navigate the reality in front of you when you have your arrogant nose in the air. You can't see where you're going. And over time, you will trip, you'll stumble, and you'll fall, and great will be the fall of you and yours. I'm not just concerned about you and your comparing. I'm concerned about the impact your comparing has on those who love you, right? All of these things, fearful, whatever, it's not just you, but it has a devastating sickle effect on those around you, just cuts it down. Well, in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, here's an example. The, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer, evidently out loud, loud and long. And I'm sure they use the prayer language, uh, uh, you know, God, uh, and making it really powerful. But I thank you, God, that I am not like a sinner, like all of you, everyone else. I don't cheat, I don't sin, 
I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income, and so it goes. I mean, isn't that attractive? That religious attitude noted in this passage is some kind of ugly. It never looks good on you, and it never looks good on someone else. It's never attractive, never, never, never. And I'll say this about comparing. It's a horrible witness, but it is an accurate picture of what's going on in your heart. The Bible says, the mouth speaks, the attitudes show what the heart is full of. I'm paraphrasing, of course. So allow God to fill your heart with compassion and kindness for others who are just struggling along, barely making it, maybe with one nostril above the waterline, as I often say. And maybe we should say as we look at others, I don't want to compare, but Lord, but for your grace, there I go. There go I. If I had their circumstances, I don't think I'd be doing as well as they're doing. Remind yourself that they are created and loved by God. I was reading over that last night, and I thought of that old Amy Grant song, My Father's Eyes. Does anybody remember that? You ever heard of Amy Grant? Teens? <laughs> Give me a nod. No? No? But I don't know if she wrote it, but at least she covered it. My father's eyes, eyes full of compassion, seeing things beyond as they appear. I mean, powerful, powerful words, and that's what I want God to give us in this whole comparison. Give us the father's eyes. Thank God that he created you to be you, not someone else, not to copy someone else. Warts, flaws, wobbles, and all. Be gentle and gracious in your comparisons, in your, in your comparisons of others. Don't get into that legalistic, judgmental mindset that leads us to absurd assumptions and conclusions about people, but about God. I want to tell you again, it all reflects your unhappiness, your lack of contentment, your comparing, it reflects back upon the God who made you. I'm not good enough, you're tearing God down because he don't make junk and he made you and he made you for a purpose and he has plans for you. If you quit complaining and comparing and get about his work, you'll have joy and significance. I love what C.S. Lewis, golden pen of years gone by wrote. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are, however, proud of being richer, cleverer, or better looking than others. And then, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Ain't it the truth? It's true. Comparison destroys contentment and it causes severe cases of pride that are so detrimental. Look out, we need to get over it. Yeah. And finally there with this grouping is the third one. And oh, here, here's the real devastating one. I think the other two are, are troubled, but this one, caring, uh, comparing creates resentment. You know what that is? It's like resentment is over time, it's like putting bad feelings and things in a crock pot and just simmering and stewing it for a long time. But it doesn't make anything tender, it makes it tough. It makes your heart tough. Comparing is a real problem that often leads to resentment road, and that becomes our permanent address. We resent people we're jealous of, 
but we often end up holding resentment in our hearts towards God who distributes all that is good. Hey, like it or not, God is the one that distributed you what you have. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. Here's an ugly biblical example of this resentment coming from the life and times of David and Saul in the Old Testament. Saul, uh, king, powerful king of Israel. David was soon to be the heir apparent. David, full of loyalty and security. King Saul, full of jealousy and insecure. And if, if you could read other places in the Bible, it said when God called him, he was a shy and backward person. And God said, he, the word said he's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else in Israel. He was good looking, he was powerful, and, and he had a humble heart in those days. But something happened. And so here's an example that calls it out that I think we've referred to recently in 1 Samuel 18. It says that when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David killed the Philistines, women from all towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. I mean, I, you know, as a, as a former athlete, before my body could no longer cash the checks that my mind is still writing, I could not stand to be on teams to coach teams where somebody had an attitude. They didn't care if the team won or lost as long as they had enough points or whatever. The people that sulk, they go to the sidelines and hang back because things aren't going their way. And they don't even celebrate a win if their team won because they didn't do so good. Don't you just despise that? That's what it reminds me of. Let's pick up the next verse seven. This was their song, the song of the gals as they turned out to celebrate the victory. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Oops. I think they should be canceled from social media for saying such a thing. This made Saul very angry. Verse eight. What's this, he said. He roared probably. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David, and that stole the joy from Saul's life. Full of resentment and jealousy, threatened by this innocent little boy, shepherd boy. This was the beginning of David's great exploits as a great warrior that he was to be, and people were celebrating his first public win for sure, and they may have gotten carried away indeed in the emotion of the moment, but they created long-term problems for David and Saul, and David's life became awful as he just had to be conscious of Saul all the time, and I mean, never dreaming when he was anointed to be king by Samuel, called in from the field, that his life would be such a mess for so many years with this powerful king chasing this, as he said, this harmless little flea, he called himself. But here's the illustration point from this that I believe is so uh, true in our lives as well. Like Saul, who God had, who God had gifted in so many ways, we have a distinct tendency to resent God's goodness in the lives of others. Did you hear me? Comparing leads us to resenting the goodness of God in the lives of others and we, while we ignore all of God's blessings in our own. We're no longer content, we're looking here, but, but they, well, they, they, well, if I, and it's devastating. And it's, we become like deer in headlight. I mean, it just ruins our life. It was so destructive to Saul. And that was the turning point, jealousy. After a great victory, for goodness sake. Oh, ain't it the truth in our lives? Come on. 
deep down. Um, I remember players growing up when I was playing sports and they, they, they hoped that somebody was starting ahead of them. They hoped that they would get hurt so they could play. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, no, I want you to know, God sees those things. God sees those attitudes in our heart and that represents a discontented heart. That represents a shortcut to what you think God might want you to do. That's exactly what Saul did, filled with jealousy and resentment of the praise directed at David, the celebration of how the Lord had used him for a big, big win over their mortal enemies, and he forgot all God's blessings to him. Rising from obscurity to fame and to fortune, he refused to celebrate David's successes. He had so much, but the problem was he also had an ungrateful and a jealous heart. I want to tell you, it never looks good on anybody, and it never looks good on you. I'm just, we're, in this series, we're just calling things what they really are. Let's quit playing around. Let's call it what it is. Let's talk about the root of it. Let's talk about the fact that it's an affront to God. God, you're not good enough. You messed up with me. You didn't know what you're doing. Sovereign God. Well, final minutes, what do we do about it? Get over it for sure, but how? Well, the good news is you can, but you don't have to, and you don't want to live with discontent and pride and resentment in your heart. You don't want to do that. Because these things, these attitudes over time will be harmful to your spiritual health. We've said that over and over and will keep you from living transformed. So two things I want to drop with you as the answer to help us get over this idea of constant comparing, comparing, looking around, flitting around, never being content just in your own skin. First of all, you've got to remember and recognize what God has given you, what you have. Do you like ungratefulness in others? You know, we try to tell our kids and grands all the time, don't be ungrateful. Don't be, you know, if somebody gives you a gift, don't go, I got one already. I got one. I don't want it. You know, few things are worse than an ungrateful adult. I wonder where the kids get there from us. I wonder. James 1.17, one of my favorite life verses, still says, every good and perfect gift, every, circle that word, is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Say that seven times as fast as you can and see what comes out. Huh. God has given us every good and perfect gift you need to navigate this life successfully. So many times our identity is what we were, a role we were in instead of who we are. Look at me. You're no less now that you're in a different place or, or position. You're just as valuable to God, and he does have a plan or purpose for you right now. He knows the past, what could have been, might have been, should have been, was. He knows the future, but he wants you to live in the present with significance, contentment. Wow, you can, you can do it. Paul found himself to be in difficult circumstances nearly all the time, and that's where he did most, it seems, and his best writing for sure. In the middle of restrictions uh, to his freedom, he wrote great things like Philippians 4, 11, the B part of that verse. 
Listen to what he says about this whole issue of comparing and contentment. I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. Contentment is never found in stuff. Next verse, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. That's the key. He is with you, he is in you right now in the middle of wherever you are and he is developing a powerful testimony and he will use you in ways you never thought possible because of the very hurt and the experiences that you've had in the past. Nate pointed out in first service just kind of a spontaneous sharing that of the worship team this morning, there has been significant huge loss in lives of a loved one represented on our stage and, and, and you know what? That hasn't diminished their witness or their testimony. God is using that to raise them to a new level of worship because he's talking about the most powerful witnesses worshiping God in the middle of the storms, in the middle of loss. That's how you navigate your way through it. You can't get to the future without living the present. You can't ever skip the present. But so many people want to live there or there. God wants you to live in the here and now. Don't compare. Be grateful. Know what you have. Know what I've given you. This is how Paul fought his battles, as that little song goes. He took his, the thoughts the enemy tried to plant in his mind, captive to the word of God. He saw these battles as opportunities for obedience and growth. He learned and implemented the strategy of taking thoughts captive, not to his feelings, but again to the word of God, as in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. That's how he fought his battles. Paul learned the lesson and secret of being content in all things, at all times, in plenty and in lack. And he knew this strength wasn't because he was so wonderful, but it came from God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know what God's given you? Do you know what he's gifted you? Recently, I received a notification by mail that North Canton Hoover, where I graduated from, and I complimented somebody for wearing orange and black, where are you, my high school colors. And I got a, a notification that next summer, uh, there's gonna be a 50-year reunion. Can you believe that? Um, I've never gone. For early years, we were always way far away. It was on Saturday night, and it was an alcohol bash or whatever I, from time to time, and I didn't have any desire to go. But, you know, I was talking to Dixie, and I, I, I think I want to go next summer. It'll involve a football game on Friday night and then some kind of gathering on Saturday. Um, and, you know, if I do, I'm praying and I intend to share that I have done what I have done and I'm doing what God has called me to do. When I was a preacher's kid, they used to sing it to me in the locker room, son of a preacher, man. Yes, he was. Did anybody remember that song from long, long ago? Son of a preacher, man. And you know, this little kid with big ears and glasses, about five foot eight, could barely touch the bottom of the net on a full run. And I've been thinking and reflecting, and I did this on the front porch this week. I wonder how my life would have unfolded if I'd chosen another direction. Like 
working at Citizen Savings after I got out of high school and deciding to work here before I went to college. And they offered to train me and hire me for their leadership track in their company when I was just out of high school. And that was a compliment. And it wasn't because I was a financial wizard. It was because of my relational skills and because of my work ethic that my parents had ingrained into me. But I wonder how life would have been different. But I want to share, if I have the opportunity, that, that all that has been accomplished or is being accomplished these nearly 50 years and counting, all the lives touched, changed, and living transformation has only been through Christ who gave me his strength. I'm only doing what he has called and created me to do. God is faithful. To God be the glory. It's not to me. It's not to you. It's to God be the glory. Great things he is doing. I love it. So do you know what God's given you? You're ignoring the things God's given you by looking over about their pile. You know, how many presents do they have? How many gifts? I want to count theirs. Are our numbers equal? It's not fair. Come on. But here's the big one. And this kind of sets you up for the next series that we're going to be doing that starts after our prayer and worship morning next Sunday. But we're going to go five weeks on positive ID, we're calling it. You must come to know who you are and whose you are. When you say Y2J, you become what? A child of God. I, pastor, you've said that. I, I'll be saying that every, as long as I'm your pastor. We can't get away from it. If our identity is anything else than that, we will never find significance. I am a child of God. This is so critical to becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus who is constantly living transformed. 1 John 3, 1a, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. It doesn't say what we were. It doesn't say what we, who we will be. It says that is what we are, a child of God. That's your new identity, all because of Jesus, as Andre wrote. I was singing this morning. You can now say, I am a child of God, not a label. That's who I am, and I hope you hear it when your head hits a pillow at night and when the alarm goes off. Believe it, embrace it, live it. It's your identity. Ephesians 2.10 says it, for we are God's masterpiece, and I'm always looking for simpler words, and, and I, that means I have files called keepers in our hope chest and, or on my phone. If it's something, a text from one of the kids, it's a keeper, man. I put it in that keeper file. You're a keeper. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. It's only in doing the good things he planned for us that we're gonna have significance and contentment. It's only there that we're gonna quit comparing because we are in the sweet spot of God's favor doing exactly what he's called you to do, not based upon what anybody else is doing. A brother, a sister, a parent, it matters not. So much joy to be found and experienced in doing the God things that God planned and planted in you from long ago. Because when God created you, remember the creation story, he said, very good. Be all that God has created you to be. Maybe some of you need to look in the mirror today before you go to bed at night and go, God said when he created me, very good. We don't need to see it through our eyes. We need our Father's eyes, don't we? What a powerful, powerful God we serve. God's masterpiece. So much joy in those good and God things. Hold your breath. Grab a deep breath, and I'm just gonna go through a few scriptures. I'm gonna fly through some real quick. Hang on, they'll be up there. I just want to make some statements. This is who you are. You are loved. 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't come to condemn you. He came to give you life. You are accepted. Ephesians 1, 6. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong, isn't that a great word? Belong to his dear son. You are a child of God. John 1, 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him at the cross, he gave the right. You have free will, but he gave you the right to become children of God. You are a member of Christ's body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. What a privilege. I want to do my part. I want to be my part, don't you? You are redeemed and forgiven. Colossians 1, 14. The Son paid for our sins, and in him we have forgiveness. Right here, right now. You are complete in Jesus Christ, Colossians 2.10. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are freed from condemnation, Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. You are a new creation because you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has what? Begun. You are chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. Colossians 3, 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people, he loves. You must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How many problems would that solve in our world? We have these promises in God's word and we believe them to be true. So let's determine to live like it, to embrace them. I was thinking and jotted down that when you learn who you are and what you have, you also learn what you don't have to be. You're freed from that. That's what comparison frees you from. You don't have to be that anymore. I was listening to one of my podcast sources and Craig Groeschel, he, he uh, interviewed Sadie Robertson Huff. Has anybody heard of her? Highly recommend her stuff. I, she founded something called Elo. It's Live Original Sisters. I, that's, I guess that's a site you ought to go to and check out. Her, her parents were of Duck Dynasty fame. Does that, does that ring a bell? Sadie uh, Robertson? She's a dynamo. She has a podcast called Woe. And I was so impressed because God has given her such favor and so, many, so, many out, so much outreach and so many, she's only 24 at least, was at the interview taping. And uh, she was commenting and weighing in on being a human that doesn't know it all and, and encouraging us to be humble and to be ourselves, recognizing the gifts are coming from God. And but she was basically saying this, just because you know who you are doesn't mean that you know it all. So don't act like you do. Isn't that good advice from a 24-year-old? Just because you know who you are and what you have doesn't mean you know everything because God is growing us and getting us better and better and better. Know what God has given you, what you have, and know who you are. I am in Christ alone, having said yes to a relationship with Jesus. I am a child of God. Writer George McDonald said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought about, think about, listen, listen, 
to be for have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all of thinking. Stop ripping on God. He didn't mess up with you. You may have messed up with him, but he's not done with you. You hear me? Quit blaming God and start thanking him. Look to develop those blessings that he has poured in to your life. No, we don't dare compare ourselves to others, the scripture says. And we need to be reminded of this. Psalm 139, 13. You, O God, made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Don't ever forget what he has given you. Don't ever forget who and whose you are. (laughs) Don't have an ungrateful heart. That's how you get over it. That's how you get over fearing, living in fear. That's how you get over complaining, 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 complaining. This could have been hooked up to complaining this message today for sure. That's how you get over just excusing everything, excusing, making excuses. I don't want to live there, do you? I want to be all that God has created and called me to be. Any, any agreement out there? No matter where you are in life, hey, look at me. It's not over. It's not a waste. God can undo tangled messes. God can give you a new identity. He can give you a good sense of purpose in life. I mean, but you just need to cooperate and go, here I am. God loves it. He's really into the big yes. Would you stand with me if you can, quietly as we close in prayer? Father, thank you so much for this practical, practical series generated from your word. All the answers to getting over all these things that are a new relationship, a deeper relationship, and dependence upon you. You do all things well. You do all things well. Forgive us for complaining, for excusing, for carrying fear. Forgive us for constantly comparing ourselves. And that's usually about what we don't think we have or we think we want or need. We entrust ourselves fully to you. We come to the cross and acknowledge that you're our Savior. And we surrender our sin, but we also surrender ourselves. We want you to be Lord of our lives. We go palms up and say, here I am, Lord. I give you all of me. I don't know how you can use me. I, I don't understand all the nuances of all the giftings and all the stuff in me and the, the past and the baggage and all that. But, Lord, I give it all to you. And if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. I want my life to count toward eternity. I want to live in the right now moment because we'll be living in the eternal now forever. And I want to begin here and now. I thank you for this precious gathering of people here online, whatever by whatever means, and pray your very best blessing on them. That we would defeat the lies of the enemy and take the truth to, to, to take the, the statements to your word, our, our truth source, and that we would live out what you see, what you think, what you say. And oh God, we can't help but come back to that. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for choosing me to be your child bear your name.